39 is where we're going to go. You know, one of the, the truths that Sydney and I try to consistently impart into the lives of each of our sons is we want them to fully understand that they are not special. Um, they're sacred. Um, special is too low of a bar to aim for. Um, that, that they have a divine purpose on their life, they have a calling on their life, and that's not because they're a Clayton, that's not because they were born into our home, that's not because they have some privileged status living in Nashville, Tennessee. That is, that is true because they are a human being dreamt up in the heart of God, the mind of God, created by the will of God for the plans and the purposes of God. And I believe this is true, not just of our sons, but of every single human being we encounter, whether you realize it or not. Maybe your parents didn't plan for you. Maybe you were a surprise to them, but you were not a surprise to God. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, you are dreamt up in the heart of the maker of the heavens and the earth, knit together in your mother's womb, and you are not special. You were created for something sacred, for something divine, for something unique. It's what Ephesians chapter two speaks of, that you're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, in order to live into all of the plans and the good works and the purposes that he has uniquely created long in advance for you to be a part of. And I go, whether you think about this or not, everywhere you go, you are surrounded by the evidence of the divine. Everywhere you go, you, you see the fingerprints of sacred broken vessels designed to carry and steward the glory of an infinite God. Your life is bigger than you realize and smaller than you understand. You are a great paradox in the kingdom. And it's by design. And we're trying to constantly remind our boys that you are made for something greater than you ever understand. And it might not be big in the eyes of the world. It might not seem like much in the eyes of the world, but God has plans and purposes for you. And everywhere that God has something great for you, the enemy comes, he wants to kill it. He wants to steal it. He wants to destroy it. He wants to get you to compromise what it is that you've been made for so you live a smaller, ordinary life where you settle for just going to church occasionally, being generous occasionally, serving occasionally, cussing less, sleeping with less people, doing less things than everybody else is doing. And guys, God has infinitely more for you and more for us than that kind of game. And we live in such a lukewarm, watered down, compromised culture, our understanding of what it even means to be a follower of Jesus is in danger of being radically altered to becoming something much smaller and much safer and much tamer than it is ever designed to be. And as, as we come into a new year together, I go, man, God, what, what is it that you wanna say? What is it that you wanna do? I, I just sense the Lord wants to to recapture our hearts and our imaginations to understand this privilege that we have to be a sacred vessel, a container of the glory of God in such a way that the people around us see how good he is, know how good he is, experience how good he is wherever we go, wherever we live, work, and play. And what I believe 
is that you have been destined for something great in the eyes of God, and the enemy is going to look to compromise, to steal, to come after it at every chance. And most of us don't understand that we've been born in a battle, and because we don't know we've been born in a battle, we don't know um, where the shots are coming from, we don't know what's at stake. And as we come into the beginning of a new year together, I just wanna stop and go, okay, what does it look like for us to be a community of people that understands we have a consecrated, sacred, holy calling and purpose in the world? That God does indeed have a plan for you. I don't think Nashville needs a cool church, a young church, an innovative church, a relevant church. I don't think Jesus is looking for a relevant church. I think he's looking for a holy church, a set-apart church, a different church, a church that is different than the world for the sake of the world and the glory of God. And I believe a lot of us are coming into the new year with a lot of things that we've been dragging from the last year or the last decade or the last two or three decades, and we're expecting something different. And the Lord is saying, hey, this is the year where it comes into the light and we experience healing and freedom. And so this morning, I just wanna talk about what does it mean for us to be a consecrated people? And if you're not familiar with that word, I'll just give you a quick definition. To be a consecrated people means you have been set apart for a sacred purpose. It means you've been marked by God for something greater than just padding your 401k or getting the girl or getting into the better house or finally getting your abs again. You're not gonna get your abs again, I'm sorry. Like whatever it is that you've slated to go, hey, I've been set apart by God for something great. And what does it mean for us to be a people to understand that? So this morning, we're gonna just look at the life of this guy named Joseph a really ordinary guy who in so many ways is just a foreshadowing of Christ. He's, he's pointing to the one who is ultimately gonna come. And, and, and Joseph, I, I love this moment in Joseph's life. If you're not familiar with Joseph, I'll just give you the cliff notes very quick. The Joseph that we're gonna look at this morning in, in the book of Genesis, he was one of the youngest of 12 sons. He grew up in a family with all kinds of dysfunction. His family would have been right at home on your you know, latest reality TV show, just an absolute mess. Um, all the brothers would have been in counseling forever, you know, all sorts of father issues and mother issues and sibling rivalry and sin was all rampant throughout the family. And yet the grace and the mercy and the beauty of God, he still looked down at this family and goes, you are sacred. You're set apart for something great. And so one day, Joseph's dad comes to him and says, he's 17 years old, he says, hey, your brothers are all out working their job, their dead-end job as shepherds out in the field. It's the job that we talked about during the Advent season. It was dangerous and boring all at the same time. It was lowly. It was a job that nobody wanted. All the older brothers knew that Joseph was their father's favorite. Joseph gets sent out in the field to look at his brother's work and to come back and give a report to his dad on how they're doing. Maybe you remember this story in Genesis 37. He comes back and he says, hey dad, um, here's the report, it's true, it's not favorable. The brothers have fallen asleep on the job, they're not doing a good job. And so he gives this bad report to his dad. His dad is grateful for the honest report on his brothers and so he does this thing that makes the situation even worse. He gives Joseph this coat of many colors, maybe you remember this from VBS, 
And whatever you were taught, this was not a fashion statement. This was a coat that the boss or the foreman would wear. So now he has to go back into the field, not just with this colorful coat, but he walks in as the boss of his older brothers who are all mad at him in the first place. Sacred vessel, consecrated, chosen by God for something in the world. So here Joseph is 17 years old and he's wrestling through all of these family dynamics and the Lord shows up in Joseph's life and he gives him a, a series of dreams. And this is one of the great markers of Joseph's life. It's not that he had a dream that he begged God to bless. It's that God had a dream that he invited Joseph to steward. And there's a difference between you having a dream that you beg God to bless and God having a plan and a purpose for you that you choose to steward. And so here he is in all of his immaturity and he doesn't understand, you know, like how to, how to carry a dream of God. He goes and he shares it with his brothers in a way that makes matters even worse and they hate him all the more and they decide to, to fake his murder. Told you it was a dysfunctional family. They sell him into human trafficking where he becomes a slave for a government official in the foreign country of Egypt. And here he is, he's in this moment, divine purpose, divine plan, divine destiny, but he learns the lesson that I believe all of us have to learn at some point is every divine purpose from God at some point has to be developed in the dark room of life gonna be developed through suffering, through hardship, through his sin and through the sin of others, God is gonna show up and he's gonna begin teaching him what it means to be a man who is consecrated for the Lord to carry the things that God has invited him to carry. In Genesis chapter 39, this is where we're gonna spend our time this morning. In a lot of ways, it's a, it's a snapshot, it's a framework of what it looks like to be a people who have consecrated themselves, who have set themselves apart for sacred things in the midst of a culture that's marked by compromise. And that's what we're gonna wrestle with this morning. How do we live as a set apart, holy, consecrated people in a world, in a culture that's marked by compromise? Genesis 39, let's start in verse one together. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. We read that in one sentence. I just want you to think about the trauma of that, the pain of this moment. Verse two says, and yet the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had given him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household and he entrusted him to his care, everything that he owned. And from that time, he put him in charge of the household. Because of Joseph, the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field, verse six. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. She said, come to bed with me, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. So how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. And so she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. 
but he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. First thing that I want you to notice as we think about what it means to live a consecrated life in the midst of a compromised culture is if we're gonna live a consecrated life, we have to learn how to identify the pattern of temptation in our lives. You have to learn how to identify the pattern of temptation in your life. Temptation from the pit of hell is very random. It's very rarely as random as we think it is. There's often a rhythm to it. It's interesting to me when Jesus was in the wilderness, when, when did the enemy come after him? When he was tired, when he was alone, when he was hungry. Have you ever noticed just the, the way that the enemy seems to show up to kill, steal, destroy, to, to come after that which the Lord has set apart for himself in your life? He has this tendency to show up more consistently when you're alone and tired and it's late at night on a Friday. It seems like temptation comes knocking more often then than 10 a.m. on a Tuesday when you're in the middle of a meeting. And part of learning to live as consecrated people in a culture marked by compromise is learning to recognize and identify that the pattern that temptation often takes in our life. I once heard a pastor, he's talking about this passage in Genesis 39, and he said, Potiphar's wife, in so many ways, she carries the personification of how temptation works. I just want you to notice this. So I want you to notice just kind of the progression. The first thing that happens is she begins to observe something in Joseph's life that she wants. Have you noticed temptation so often starts with the eyes? Look back at verse seven. Verse seven says, after a while, she took notice of Joseph. She saw him, something, something grabbed her uh, attention. You know, this is what John, one of the best friends and disciples of Jesus would say, is that the essence of so much temptation, 1 John chapter two, verse 16, he says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the what? Shout it out, the lust of the eyes. Like what you fix your eyes on, eventually your heart will follow. And guys, this is a real, this is a real, challenge in a culture like ours where five, this is, this is an actual statistic, 5,000 times a day, the average American is bombarded with images designed to draw your heart away from something and to something. What you fix your eyes on matters. What you look at matters. What, what you take in matters. 5,000 times a day, you're seeing advertisements with half-naked people selling peanut butter and you know, dating apps and beer and bread and everything else. I remember one day we were driving past this billboard and it was just like this woman's cleavage and a thing of peanut butter. And our boys were like, why did they do that? And I'm like, cause you'll remember that peanut butter forever. You're, you're, we see it so often you're numb to it. We're numb to it. The number of times, guys, I know I'm gonna step on some toes. I, I'm doing this because I love you. The number of times I have conversations with Christians, they go, yeah, I was watching this movie and yeah, it's fine, there's a sex scene here and this here and this. it doesn't really affect me though. Not true. It affects you. You're desensitized to it. It affects you. It affects you. And the enemy's in the long game. And the way temptation works in the long game 
If the enemy is clear about your identity, he knows that you have a, design, a divine design. He knows that you have a sacred purpose and he, he will just chip away at it. He'll come at it over and over and over. And so often temptation begins with this observation. It's what happened with Eve in the Garden of Eden, remember? She looks at the fruit, it's desirable. She's looking at it. She's drawn to it. It's, it's what happened with Lot, the nephew of Abraham. He says he looks towards Sodom. The first time he looks towards Sodom, it, it seems desirable. The next chapter you see him, he's living in the fields near Sodom. In the next chapter, he's in the city. In the next chapter, he's at the gates. He's a leader. It's the progression of temptation. It starts with the eyes. Observation. Next thing that happened in the life of Potiphar's wife, it goes from observation to obsession. Verse 10, what she do? What does she do? Day after day, day after day, she's, she's pursuing, she's obsessing. She's obsessing, she's thinking. Have you ever noticed whenever you make peace with temptation in your life, when you give temptation a seat at your dinner table, it never is satisfied with just keeping one seat. It wants the whole table. It grows, it grows, it grows, it grows, it grows, it grows, it grows. It starts with observation. It goes to obsession. And then there's this moment where she thinks she has to obtain it. Look at verse 12. She finds Joseph and she grabs hold of him. And guys, for a lot of us, because we've never been trained in what it means to live a consecrated life, we don't even know that temptation has hit us until we've reached out to try to grab hold of it. And we think that's the moment where everything went wrong. And I'm telling you, I'm convinced that nobody wakes up and in one day goes, here's the day I throw it all away. It's typically days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years of small decisions and, and undealt with temptations and all sorts of things that have been lingering underneath the surface. And the enemy is in the long game. And at the time when it will cause the most pain and the most humiliation and the most destruction, he goes, hey, here we go. If we're gonna live a consecrated life, we have to understand the way that this works. I love James chapter one, verses 14 and 15. So clear, look at this. It says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. Watch the progression. And they're enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? To death. This is the way that the enemy works. He looks for legitimate needs and desires and longings in the human heart, and he tries to tempt you to meet those legitimate needs in unholy ways. That's the essence of temptation. As a human, you have legitimate needs and desires, needs for touch, for community, for affirmation, for all sorts of things. And the enemy says, Meet that legitimate need in an unholy way. Nobody's gonna know, nobody's gonna see, nobody's going to understand. But if we're gonna live as consecrated people set apart in a culture of compromise, we have to understand that we have to begin by recognizing the pattern of temptation. Second thing that we have to notice is that if we're gonna live a consecrated life, we have to develop the right perspective when it comes to sin. Like we live... We live in a culture that almost never even uses the word sin. And this is what the devil always does. He just changes language. Oh, it's just a mistake. It's just a struggle. It's just a weakness. We try to take the edge off of the reality. 
But Jesus goes, no, this, this thing, it is cancer in the soul. And, and if you leave it unattended, it will cost you everything. And so part of what has to happen is we have to begin getting a right perspective when it comes to sin. Look back at verse nine. This is just so telling to me. She comes in and she's been chasing him down and he says, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you're his wife. So how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It's fascinating to me, Joseph, don't you know he just had like in his mind, just a whole number of needs and desires that were completely unfulfilled. He's away from home, away from his family, away from his brothers, wasn't married, living as a slave, like all of these things. Life had not turned out the way that he wanted. And don't you know he had some unmet desires, some unmet needs, some places of trauma that had not been dealt with. All kinds of stuff going on in his life. And there's this moment where the enemy shows up through the life of this woman that's trying to, to tempt him. And he has this really clear understanding of the effects and the ravages of sin in his life. He goes, hey, I can't do this because sin will impact me both horizontally and vertically. In other words, he goes, if I do this thing, it will destroy my relationships horizontally. And ultimately it will destroy my friendship with God vertically. He goes, how can I do this? He goes, this is my master's wife. But more importantly, he goes, how can I do this wicked thing against the Lord? It, Joseph knew, even if nobody else knew, God knew, and that was enough. Joseph understood something that would be really important to just impress in the depths of our hearts, and that is who we are when we think no one is looking is who we really are. Who we are when we think no one is looking is who we really are. Remember years ago, I was 20 or 21 years old. One of my buddies was getting ready to propose to his girlfriend. She was living in Manhattan for the summer. I'd never been to Manhattan. He asked me to fly up there with him and to help pull off this extravagant proposal. And so as he was gonna be like leading her around the city, doing different things, leading up to the engagement, I was supposed to be in front of them, setting things out, doing different things. And, and I remember just being in the middle of the, the energy and. I just loved it. I was in this huge city. I'd never been there before. And all of this, you know, if you've ever been there, all of the stimuli, you just see all of the advertisements and all of the things, all of the, the worldliness and the fleshliness. And, and I'll be honest, um, I was completely mesmerized by it. And I remember walking in downtown Manhattan. This moment has marked my life. I remember walking in downtown Manhattan and just this subtle voice in my mind. And at the time, I didn't even recognize initially where it came from, but the subtle voice in my mind said, Dave, nobody in this city knows you. And I understood it was an invitation. Hey, nobody knows you. And I'm just walking across this crosswalk with 19 gabillion people, you know, all crowded in and the, the orchestra of car horns and sights and sounds and smells. And I'm, I'm just entertaining this thought, nobody knows me, nobody knows me, nobody knows me. Oh, nobody knows me. And my mind just begins to go, oh, there's opportunity here. And about a minute later, the grace of the Lord, I'm walking down this crowded sidewalk and I hear, Dave Clayton? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, Lord. <laughs> And I turn and there's this guy who lived on my floor, uh, you know, in the dormitory. He was doing an internship there in Manhattan that summer. 
And it was like God said, hey, nobody knows you. I see you. I see you. It's one of the first verses we teach our sons. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and understanding, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We're like, hey, guys, if you would know everywhere you go, everything, like, God sees. God sees. He sees. And Joseph, he was learning to identify the pattern of temptation in his life. He had a right perspective on sin, number three. And in the midst of this culture of compromise, he was learning day by day, how do you walk in the path of righteousness? Day by day in the, in the onslaught of temptation, day by day in the onslaught of sin, day by day in all of this, how do you walk in the path of righteousness? Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, when his master heard the story that his wife had told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger, and he put him in prison, the place where the prisoners confined him. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Day by day, day by day, day by day, going, how do I walk it out? 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 How, 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 how do I walk the path of righteousness? You know, back in verse 10, when she's coming after him, he goes, hey, I, I, I'm not even gonna be alone with her. Because I'm not, not, not even gonna be alone with her. Because he understood that consecration Guys, listen to this, impress this into your heart. Consecration is not just a line that you cross or don't cross. Holiness is not just a line you cross or don't cross. Consecration is a direction you head. You know, if you grew up as a teenager in a church youth group, I guarantee you at some point, some kid in your youth ministry raised their hand and they were asking a question about dating and they raised a hand and they asked your youth minister or your youth pastor this question, how far is to, shout it out, how far is to? Far. Yeah, okay, how far is to? Far. Yeah, you guys know that. That's the question that a compromised heart asks. And I'm not being hard, I go, I asked that question. I asked that question when I thought consecration was a line, not a direction. And Joseph, he understood what was on the line. He understood what God had made him for. He understood what God had said to him. He goes, I'm not even gonna be alone with you. And day after day after day, when his boss shows up and his boss is angry, when his boss goes, hey, this is gonna cost you, day by day by day, he's going, how do I walk in the path of righteousness? Fourth thing, a consecrated life. A consecrated life will at times, will at times, mean that we have to pay the price for trying to live a godly life in the midst of a godless culture. Guys, to be a consecrated person in the world that we're in, it, it, it's gonna cost you at times. You're gonna lose friends. You're gonna lose opportunities. There, there's gonna be things that are gonna come when you try to walk in the ways of Jesus. See, the, the, the great lie of our watered-down culture is that you can sort of be with Jesus and you can totally succeed in the world and that those two things can coexist together. Guys, that'd be like me saying I'm mostly married to Sydney except on the weekends. It doesn't work that way. And there's, there's a price 
that we pay. And Joseph, he pays the price of being misunderstood. He, he pays the price of doing the right thing. He, he pays the price. And here's the reality. He loses his title in Potiphar's house, but he doesn't lose his testimony. He gives up the coat, but not his character. And I'm telling you, it's better to be in prison with your character intact than to be walking around under the guise of freedom enslaved to sin. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're, you're the last year, the last month, the last decade, you have felt the aching in your bones of a secret life. You're made for more. You're made for more. And you have to see how temptation works. You have to understand sin. You have to figure out how to walk in the path of righteousness. At times, you're gonna have to pay the price for walking this way, but ultimately, and this is where we'll land the plane in Genesis chapter 39, ultimately we understand that a consecrated life opens the door for the abundant gift of God's presence. It opens the gift for the, uh, opens the door for the abundant gift of God's presence. Look back at verse 20 with me one more time. It says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was what? The Lord was with him and shared him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Guys, this is the distinguishing mark of Joseph's life over and over and over and over and over. Is that God is with them. Is that God is with them. And as he sought to walk as a consecrated man in the midst of a compromised culture, as he sought to walk with integrity, as he sought to prioritize holiness, as he sought to walk in those things, the Lord drew near in his life and the Lord was high and lifted up and it wasn't just about his benefit, but it blessed everybody else around him. And if you know the rest of Joseph's story, his dysfunctional family is gonna experience redemption. His nation and the nations are gonna experience redemption because you cannot... You cannot overestimate what God will do through one man or one woman whose life is wholly consecrated to the Lord. And I believe in the moment that we're in, the city that we're in, the culture that we're in, we don't need a cool church or a relevant church or a convenient church. We need a consecrated, holy, passionate church. And if you're like me, I, I look at stories like this and I go, how do you even do this? And if you hear me say nothing else today, here's, here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear the good news about consecration. And here's the good news about consecration. When it comes to being set apart for something divine, yes, there's a part you play. You have to choose to walk in obedience. Yes, you have to choose to walk in righteousness. Yes, you have to choose to bring your sin into the light. Yes, you have, there's some choices that you have to make, but here's what I want you to hear. Here's the good news about consecration is that the heavy lifting of consecration is not something you do. It's something that's been done for you. And guys, this is the whole essence of the gospel. Guys, the gospel is good news when you are bad at living a good life. <laughs> The gospel is good news for people that struggle to live a good life. The gospel is, is good news for people who look at this and go, 
I don't know how to stop temptation. I don't know how to deal with the past. I don't know how to handle the trauma. I don't know how to deal with the stuff that I've worked out. The gospel says that Christ has done something for you you can never do on your own, and now you get to respond out of it. And when you're at your very worst, Jesus is at his very best. I love Hebrews chapter four, this last passage of scripture we'll look at this morning. Listen to this. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, has gone into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. This is the good news about consecration. Whether you knew it or not, you were destined for something great. If you're like me and like every other person on planet earth, you've shipwrecked it at some point. Maybe you've shipwrecked it this weekend. And the good news is that Jesus, God, became flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death. He raised on the third day. He ascended. He returned to heaven where he's seated currently at the right hand of God. He poured out the Holy Spirit on the church so that the Spirit of God, one-third of heaven's resources, could live inside of your body to help you think as you never thought, to love as you never loved, to live as you never lived, to walk as you never walked. And the Holy Spirit shows up in power to go, I want you to look more like Jesus, be more like Jesus, see more of Jesus. Because one day Jesus will get off of that throne. He will come back down. He will set his feet on this earth. He will judge the living and the dead. He will reign and rule forever in a new heaven, in a new earth where all things are being made new. And he goes, and your confidence in that day will not be that you did everything you needed to do on your own to be consecrated. It's that you surrendered to the reality that he did what you could not do. Listen to this church, it's so beautiful, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every single way, just as we are. I know most of you don't even believe that, but you know Jesus has been tempted in every single way, like actually tempted, not just intellectually, tempted. He faced it. He understands you, but here's the good news. He doesn't just understand you, he did what you and I could never do. He was tempted just as we are, yet he did not sin. So he has understanding and he has strength. Verse 16, so let us approach God's throne of what? Shout it out, God's throne of? Not throne of judgment, not throne of wrath. Let's approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Why do we come to the throne of grace with confidence? It's not because you're so good at being consecrated. We come to the throne of grace with confidence, look at this, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Guys, I'm convinced in a room this size, there are some patterns of sin and temptation. There are some secret choices that are secret to everyone in your life except to the Lord. And if you do not allow Jesus to deal with them decisively today, they will ruin you in a decade. And this is the mercy of the Lord. We come to the throne of grace. We confess our sins to one another for healing. We receive the bread and the cup to go, man, this is how far Jesus would go for a sinner like me. And we hold on to it firmly as we come into a new year. To be a consecrated people doesn't mean that we have it all together and we're perfect. It means that we understand what to do with the darkness that's still inside of us. And we keep bringing it to the foot of the cross. We keep putting it 
in the light of God's glory. You know, for some of you, this is the year you've been talking about freedom prayer for like six years. Today's the day to sign up. There's some of you that you need to confess some sin today. There's men and women that'll be at the respond banner. We'd love to receive. There's some of you that need prayers. We take communion. There's some of you that you have things that you keep shoving back in the past. You don't know how to deal with it. You don't want to deal with it, but it just keeps manifesting in a way that is compromising the calling that God has made you for. Don't let this be a year where you just chase being special. Let this be a year where you step into what it means to, to be a sacred vessel. 2 Corinthians 4, like broken jars of clay, the glory of God might shine out of us. So this morning as we receive communion, I just want to encourage you to just think, okay, are, are there any areas of my life where I've been entertaining temptation? Are there any areas where I've been moving in the direction of compromise? Are there any areas where I've been living one life in secret and another life in community? And I just want to encourage you, find somebody you love and trust this morning and bring it all to the foot of Jesus and let's let him deal with it. So let's stand together. I want to pray. God, we love you and your mercy is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God, would you just... Would you just purify our hearts, small things, big things, hidden things. Let us, let us both receive mercy and extend mercy this morning. Receive grace and extend grace this morning. God, you are light and in you there's no darkness at all. God, would you just shine your light to every nook and cranny of our hearts and would you bring life and light in freedom? And would you set us apart as a city on a hill so that others would see uh, your tremendous work in our lives, the uniqueness with how we live and act, and, and God, would they be drawn to you, not to us. God, we receive the bread and the cup this morning, uh, just going, hey, we can't consecrate ourselves. This is you. This is your work. This is your mercy. This is your grace. And God, we come this morning not to take communion, but to receive, to receive grace, to receive mercy, to receive forgiveness, to receive your presence. God help us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, I love you. Let's come receive communion. It's on the tables all around the room. Circle your chairs up. Pray, confess, share your hearts. Encourage each other if you want to receive prayers, if you need to confess sin, if you want to give your life to Jesus. There's men and women at the Respond Banner. Love you.